Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on some of the biggest stories developing in the region. This week, we'll be discussing allegations that Russia is stealing Ukrainian grain and selling it through and to Turkey. The charges were brought by Ukraine's ambassador to Ankara, who has formally asked that the Turkish government stop the illicit traffic. Turkish leaders have denied that any stolen Ukrainian wheat is being marketed in their country, but open source intelligence suggests otherwise. A Russian flagged ship carrying thousands of tons of grain is being held and investigated by Turkish authorities upon the request of Ukraine, the first such seizure. The charges come against the backdrop of a brewing global food crisis. Ukraine was prior to the war a major supplier of grain. Now some 30 million tons of grain are sitting in Ukrainian silos. Turkey is seeking, in tandem with the United Nations, to secure safe passage of vessels carrying the grain, but there's been no progress on that so far. With us here today to discuss the situation is Yurup Ishik, an Istanbul-based geopolitical analyst who is tracking the movements of ships involved in the illegal commerce. So welcome to our show, Yurik. It's great to have you here today. Thanks for inviting me, Amberin. So <laughs> there's been a lot of interest recently in this story about how Russia is stealing Ukrainian grain and uh, selling it via Turkey or to Turkey. And there have been multiple investigative pieces on this subject uh, most recently by the Financial Times. And before that, I saw something on the BBC. Um, there's just been tons of media interest in this story. And of course, the Ukrainians are very upset about it. And in all of these stories, we see you being quoted. You are the big expert, Yurik. So can you just sort of tell us what's actually happening? So what we are witnessing is when the, uh, what we are seeing actually, if we take a step back, we are seeing two separate wars getting fought back to back. So war number one ended up in a fiasco for Russia. That war was to change the regime in Kiev. And when Russia lost that war, it went back to the scenario we are used to see when things don't work out for Russia. And that is, uh, asymmetrical warfare, changing totally unexpected uh, events, uh, use it uh, for Russia's uh, military um, position or whatever military aims are, whatever diplomatic aims are. We saw that in the Syrian war, we see this in uh, sometime in Africa. So in, in this case, in the, in the Eastern Europe, in the Belarus, Ukraine case, we saw the energy getting weaponized. We saw last year, uh, refugees getting weaponized. So right now, Russia is weaponizing um, food and uh, grains and the, in general, the food security. And what we are seeing is actually is not new. Um, I've been witnessing as, and from my uh, observation position here as an Istanbul resident, by just simply looking at the Bosphorus, that uh, ships 
carry goods from the occupied territories and Crimea, also from the occupied territories of Georgia. There is a uh, forgotten uh, war and forgotten occupied land there, which one should mention, and that is the Abbasia. And, um, but the ships carry goods mostly to Turkish ports because usually the smaller ships that, you know, they don't maybe have insurance or if something happens to the ship, it's not a big loss because, and the Turkey is, is just by proximity, but to, in general, to the Eastern uh, Mediterranean ports. And uh, I mean, Syria obviously is a very big place for this contraband operation. And to Egypt, occasionally to Greece, uh, we see ships uh, carrying goods. And what has been carried from years, it's grain, uh, because obviously Ukraine is a breadbasket, as the most uh, common cliche goes. And also what is really valuable here is scrap metal, uh, steel junk, scrap metal is getting carried. That is exclusively almost comes to Turkey because there are um, operation here to turn the scrap metal into, uh, you can reuse it and it becomes very valuable. What, what's different right, uh, different right now in last two, three, uh, last two months, um, the, the speed and the, uh, the level of organization Russia is displaying to move these commodities. And like you uh, counted uh, BBC's excellent investigation and FD's investigation. And also there have been several others. One we should mention that uh, France Television, that one that I really, really like because it was the first one uh, that followed the, um, what have the operation on the ground it's working, which is a very important part. Later on, BBC kind of filled the gap there. Um, that we see an organized approach that we haven't seen before. In the previous years, it was mostly Syrian ships, abandoned ships, etc., that's moving this grain. Now, somebody made an effort because this brand new three ships appear, and this we can name them here: Matros Poznic, Matros Koshka and Mikhail Nanashev. And uh, you see, I'm wearing here, even there is like, uh, there's good messages. Like for example, uh, Matros Pozinich, Matros means sailor. So the ship's name is Sailor Pozinich or the Marine Pozinich, we, one can translate. It was the, Pozinich was the, was the sailor, was the Marine who was uh, deployed in Syria after Turkey shut down the Su-24 plane. So oh, there is really? like, yeah. Wow. And like Andy Matroskoshka is a pro-Russian uh, character who fought against the allies of uh, British, French and Turkish allies in the original, original Crimean war. So, you know, there is lots of subtext, classic. Yeah, a uh, lot of subliminal <laughs> messaging. But yeah, you're, before, messaging you continue, <laughs> before you continue, there's just one thing I want to clarify here, because we speak about stolen grain. You say this has been going on for years. And so we need to sort of try and understand which grain we're talking about here, because on the one hand, there's the grain from Crimea that was occupied in 2014. So obviously, as you described, it's been happening for some time. But now there's this more organized effort. And does that also include grain that is from the parts of uh, Ukraine that uh, have been recently occupied by Russia? Yes, there was grain. There are grain depots, obviously. It's been seized by uh, Russia. And so it is... Uh, right now, the what uh, Russia is arguing, and you know, uh, usually since the Soviet times, what Russians like that they will try to argue little 
legal points and international agreements and so now they are trying to confuse us and like you hear like from the occupation administration the so-called the crimean government whatever they say oh they are re-exporting the grain coming from krasnodar etc no i mean it's just um they seize the existing grain uh, that was already in Ukrainian depots waiting to be exported, and they are harvesting new grains literally at gunpoint from farmers. That's why I mentioned the France Television interview because uh, although BBC found one farmer in France Television, there were more that they literally go and they force people to sell their grain. This is this is happening. Like you know, it will happen under maybe Vichy government or uh, and, you know some administration that. People so are, which parts of Ukraine are we talking about now? Mariupol or where? Where is this well, great? Like right now, like one of the places I really paid attention recently, like in Oktyabrsk, uh, there was a grain storage site. But in Karach, in uh, Melitopol, uh, there were all uh, grain sites. So when you don't, sometimes there is um, organizations like Sea Cream, etc., that Ukrainian activists, which they have lots of Russian members also who are opposing this unjust war. And there is eyewitness news coming, but also um, like when you use uh, the satellite uh, pictures, which now by becoming spring, we have significantly more satellites compared to the beginning of the war. At the beginning of the war, when we get some satellite of some new Russian camp, snow covered, when it was in a cloudy day, it really didn't work like it. But now there is uh, more beautiful days following one after another. So we can see many places and there are key points you can see um, uh, to to use the satellite uh, wisely, because when you look with satellite, you have to choose the points to look intelligently, because you are looking to a giant country, and Ukraine is a giant country. So, but like uh, in Chonhar, uh, in Chonhar and Armyansk, where there is uh, key points where the uh, railroad uh, road networks meet, etc., those are key places, and we see. Uh, trucks, massive amount of trucks are carrying from different Crimean points, uh, grain to these connection points to be transported to Sevastopol. Uh, and some of it goes to, uh, to mainland Russia also, not for in, not the entire things for re-export. But um, for example, uh, you know, in, in an average day, you see hundreds of trucks in a Chonhar pond. And this, so this that's kind of really insane. And you, Yuruk, sitting, on the Bosphorus in Turkey, you know, uh, uh, like a regular guy has figured this all out. So is it even well, I should, conceivable? No, I should that... highlight this. Uh, no, this, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that is very, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm, I like that you're praising me like this, but uh, open source is not done by one person. Uh, this is a source of literally um, dozens of very good ones, but my point is that if you guys collectively all you you know uh open source intelligence guys um aficionados uh, uh, sort of fans whatever. <laughs> yeah. yeah whatever um and and thank you for all that brilliant work can figure this out is it even remotely conceivable that the turkish government with all its you know intelligence uh, and, and you know, uh, it's uh, know-how cannot be aware of this. I was hoping that you will say this, I mean, because you just literally took the words out of my mouth. Yes, that is exactly my point. I mean, there is no way. And besides our advice, etc., there is an excellent, an excellent Turkish Chamber of Shipping guidance 
about how to follow this up. It says, check the ship logs, check the AAS background. You know, there are ways that you will look and you will see the ship logs uh, and given how international these ships are, the sailors, etc., you know, somebody will not put the right date. They, it will not match that. It will say suddenly the ship one day was in Samsun and next day was in Kerch and the next day was somewhere else. Like the dates won't fit, the timing of the, it won't fit. There will be amazing gaps. All these ships we name, they have amazing gaps. And those the amazing gaps. The ship comes from Mediterranean. It clears Bosphorus. And right, right outside Bosphorus. Okay, so, 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 so exactly like you said, there is no way, there is no right. way that this cannot be found out. Okay, and so, you know, at the start of the war, there was this, uh, you know, um, narrative that Turkey is Ukraine's big friend. And in fact, I myself went to Ukraine just shortly before, literally days before the war erupted. And it, it certainly was true that there you know, Turkey was held in very high regard, obviously the Bayraktar thing. And, but, you know, even before that, all the sort of exchanges between, you know, the, the people going back and forth, loads of tourists and history and Sultan the Magnificent, Suleiman the Magnificent's wife was Ukrainian, Roxolana, etc. Um, but then here we are, you know, with Turkey basically sanctioning this theft. Uh, why is Turkey allowing this to happen? And can we believe the Turkish foreign minister when he claims that they've not established any theft so far? Um, I, I can only say that he is not fully informed yet. I don't want to go and on the record and say uh, that he doesn't know, or, but he must not have the, all the facts. I still uh, repeat my line, and maybe this is an extremely optimistic and very rosy position. I still believe, compared to many other countries on the world, especially in Europe, given most of friends of Ukraine is in the Western world, and uh, Turkey has been a bigger friend to Ukraine than many other very significant European countries. And despite this wheat issue, that, that is still the case. Turkey stands not just by work. And since 2014, Turkey has been on the record about uh, that is not acceptable. Any, any territorial violation of Ukraine is not acceptable to Turkey. That is even a bigger position than most of the major European countries. Uh, that wasn't the position. When we look back right now, that's not the position of Germany or France. I mean, they really forced Ukraine to give up big chunks of Ukraine. They were still pushing Ukraine to do this. So I see this um, situation as an unfortunate outcome. The general environment in Turkey that uh, the, the amazing decline in the rule of law and the uh, huge economic crisis, possibly the biggest since Second World War um, and, and, the, and the attraction of uh, short-term uh, profit, which is extremely short-sighted, because Turkey is on the record. Ukraine is Turkey's strategic partner. Ukraine is Turkey's neighbor, and through Crimean Tatars, Turkey has bloodline, blood connection to Ukraine. So, taking advantage of this country in this darkest hour, it is totally unacceptable. It is extremely immoral, 
and it should be unacceptable everyone uh, well that's certainly what the ukrainians would argue but um we also know that turkey has this very weird kind of relationship with russia uh, that's yeah. gotten super weird ever since turkey shot down that plane and then got the russian s400s and i mean yeah very hard to really understand what re what's really going on there but obviously an imperative exists for Turkey to sort of try and strike some kind of balance in its relations between Ukraine, the West and Russia as things currently stand. So um, is it conceivable that there is some kind of quiproquo between the Russian state and the Turkish state? Or are you saying that this grain business is sort of under the government's radar, it's not sanctioned by the Turkish state? And if you say that it's not, then why isn't Turkey doing more to stop it? I think they are trying to sustain an impossible position of that they come up with the line that they are pro-Ukraine but not anti-Russian. I mean, I was since last one month on almost in all the interviews are saying that Russia will, you cannot maintain this position. It's, it's I, I commend it, it's good because Russia is Turkey's neighbor it's a huge partner and turkey maybe does not have the luxury of uh taking very harsh decisions against russia compared to some other western european countries we have to live by these people but russia so far has been taken advantage of turkey's uh goodwill turkey bent backwards of not to issue sanctions and it invited for this peace talks russians totally shunned that they didn't participate in goodwill is, uh, you know, they send Lavrov here. Like I was keep saying like, who's, why they're sending Lavrov? I mean, like who's Lavrov at this point? Lavrov is a person who learned this war started probably from Twitter. Lavrov is nobody in Moscow at this point. Even Lavrov's arrival here for weed talks is showing to me that they are not engaging in this in seriousness. And when they come, they bring nothing to the table. They are concerned. They want to inspect ships going to Ukraine and etc. That you see the weeks are passing. They are playing to the time. So yes, there is a, uh, at this point, there, I mean, if, uh, what, one other thing to Turkey's credit, let's say, at this, since this war started, they have been trying things like the peace talks, et cetera. And every time it fails because Russia does not engage. And because I think in principle, Russia will never give this diplomatic victory to Turkey. So, but they've been kind of uh, like, punishing step by step, like they close the Bosphorus, then they try to organize one more thing, they close the airspace. When you look at the planes in last one month, Russian Air Force planes, whatever planes they have left still goes to Syria, it goes through crazy places. It, it crosses like Saudi airspace, Iraq closed, etc. also the airspace. So it's just like, it's going literally around the world, just go um, uh, to, to Syria, like their foreign minister couldn't go to Serbia a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's just, uh, so right now, maybe they really offer, they want they wanted to push this wheat diplomacy, grain diplomacy, etc., which seems like, you know, it's not really working. They really pushed it. And ma ma now maybe they will, I'm, again, I'm looking from the rosy side, maybe they will shut down this uh, grain uh, traffic because uh, there are two, three ships. It is a new, and like as a, I'm um, just probably on the world. It's only on your first, in your uh, 
podcast, uh, this is getting public right now. There are two, three ships get loaded in last two days, three days, and they're waiting. They're not proceeding towards Bosphorus. Um, oh, interesting. That is an interesting There was situation. a ship that was just uh, stopped, seized by the Turkish government, right? Exactly. Besides that, that's the Jebek Jolu. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's like the Silk Road in Kazakh. It's owned by a Kazakh company, but it's leased to a Russian company. And, uh, and also like this lease uh, as a here as a footnote uh, and to the like in the, at the beginning of the program, I was saying that uh, there is more organization. There are created, they created new companies. Probably they will disappear after this operation. So they are not sanctioned. Like this, there is this three ships belong to an Astrakhan company. There is this smaller ships now appeared. These are classic moves to avoid sanctions. They know that the world will eventually figure out and ban these companies or ships, et cetera. So there is a clear intelligence there organizing this, trying to hide uh, their trail, let's say. Well, so, you mentioned yes. Syria, Yurik, and you know, of course, we're very interested in Syria. And you said that, uh, which is true, that Turkey has uh, closed the Bosphorus Straits to all naval ships, Russian and NATO naval ships. and. Uh, it's become very hard, obviously, then to Which supply. is another strange thing. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you up. But like, why closing to, in, like, okay, you can ask your NATO partners don't come in right now. And I don't think NATO doesn't have any desire to directly face Russians. But actually closing to the entire world is another move to really not to offend Russians, which at this point is unnecessary because they are uh, so, uh, they're not shy about offending anyone. But, but are yes, we I'm sure that no weapons or, you know, anything are going now via the Bosphorus to Syria, Russian stuff. Couldn't they just conceal them in commercial uh, vessels? Yes, and actually they do. Russia, uh, Russian, uh, that was the piece I wrote for the uh, Middle East Institute. Uh, yes, Russian I remember, month, I it was a yeah. fantastic so piece, yes. Russian, uh, Russian Navy, uh, like many other navies on the world, they uses auxiliary vessels, but the, comp uh, the difference from the other navies, the other navies make public which vessels they are using. Like, you know, there is, uh, there is Sea Lift Command, uh, the Merchant Navy in, in the US, and Royal Navy has it. Um, and, uh, you know, that many French have it. Uh, so, but here, you, Russia also have declared ships they uh, belong to the company Oberon Logistica, which is uh, fully owned by the Russian Defense Ministry. So they have ships that we know they are working for Russian Defense Ministry. They are uh, civilian crews, civilian flagships, but they should be treated as uh, Navy ships. You know, actually at the beginning of the Syrian war, the, there was similar tactics and there was confusion. Uh, there was more confusion back then because they were not so clear about this civilian crews, civilian flagships. They are officially working for defense ministry. Oboron Logistica since then got restructured. Um, and at one point, I remember Russian, uh, excuse me, Turkish foreign ministry said, we're gonna treat uh, civilian vessels carrying Russian uh, armed uh, personnel or armed uh, assets as military ships. At this point, Turkey should make this the similar case. I mean, because they are so why aren't they? So why aren't they? I think there is this and there is this endless desire, like many other European nations have, like France and Germany have also, that they want they don't want to spoil their relation with Russia. The entire world is gonna punish Russia, but somehow nation X, being in this case Turkey, or like 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 uh, Chancelier shows with it, or from his hours long phone calls, Macron believes it, they're gonna be the one uh, country 
that is coordinating things between the rest of the world and Russians, and they're going to collect benefits from this. But Russia is not really playing this game. This is a wishful thinking on the side of Turkey, Germany, or France that they can manage this relation. Russia, in I think, uh, deep down inside, sees all these countries as inferior to it. Russia is only <laughs> sees itself as an equivalent of United States. Yeah. And at the end of the day, wow. only will deal with United States. As that's, this is the plain well, truth. Is that the way we're going to see this grain crisis resolved? Because after all, it has, you know, cascading effects across the world and particularly for Africa. Um, how is this going to be fixed? Or yeah, is that is, yeah, I think that's what Russians are playing because the sad truth is uh, when, they, when on, a, on beautiful, nice, sunny days that when things are working out for us, the world, in quote, you can put it in quote, the Western world, the Northern Hemisphere, whatever the, you know, a la mode world is right now, is, has tendency to forget about the problems of the South. But Russians are very well aware of this. And what they are playing right now is turning the global South against North. When you look at the UN wars, et cetera, that yes, many, many countries stand by Ukraine and that is amazingly good. But when you look at per population, bigger part of the world population is not necessarily by Ukraine. They are standing, you know, usually in a neutral position, trying not to offend Russia because, uh, when the food crisis comes, they don't know who will come to help to them. And when the food crisis comes, that will, from Sahil to Levant, it will overthrow governments, it will overthrow people, there will be a massive public uh, unrest. And that's what Russians are playing right now to the time, because that day, if we cannot move this Ukraine wheat, the 30, nearly 30 million tons of wheat uh, from Ukraine, that's what will happen. And so the crisis is coming and they are playing to the crisis because they didn't get away with what they wanted, which they didn't get away with changing the government in Ukraine, turning everything upside down there. They didn't get away in Belarus fully. And so uh, what they are now, they're gonna spoil everything for everyone. This is a classic Russian scenario. Or maybe there's a classic war scenario when you don't get your way then they are playing to create a massive chaos around the world. That's what's happening. Oh gosh, well, I guess um, <laughs> that's, that just sounds so terribly depressing. Um, we'll all be needing a stiff drink, I guess, <laughs> some <laughs> vodka. Um, well, Yurik, that was a fantastic um, conversation. We learned so much from you. Thank you for all that you do and um, hope that we get to have you back on our show sometime soon of course it will be my pleasure Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. 
And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. And this brings us to the end of this week's On the Middle East. I hope you'll join us next week for another show that hopefully will be just as interesting as this one was. Thank you and goodbye.